This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Alana Kaus, author of Fighting Over There, U.S. War Making and Contemporary Refugees Literature. How are you doing today? I'm well. Thank you for inviting me to speak with you today. Thank you. I wonder if you could start by saying a few words about yourself and how you got started on this project. Well, I'm an assistant professor of English at Georgia Southwestern State University, where I specialize in contemporary American literature. Uh, Fighting Over There began as my dissertation project as I was working toward my PhD at the University of Connecticut. And the project emerged pretty organically. I knew that I wanted to study representations of U.S. warfare, as well as the rhetoric that authorized that warfare. Um, And though I had my prospectus, I didn't have a fully mapped out plan going into the work that came over time. I started gathering an archive, reading stories that related experiences and perspectives that, though very different from one another, were all linked in some way to U.S. foreign and refugee policy in the late 20th and early 21st centuries. I think that some people might be surprised uh, that I turned to literature in order to think through the histories that I examine in the book, but literature has always been the lens through which I view things. And so to me, it makes perfect sense. The book really is founded on the premise that literature has something to say about the U.S. policies that shape people's lives in the United States and elsewhere. In chapter one, you talk about the Vietnamese um, refugees. Can you give us some information about what you learned from those novels? Sure. Um, So the book contends in part that the United States has a long-standing history of helping to provoke crises from which people must flee before at times resettling refugees, but more often than not rejecting requests for asylum. And the first chapter, uh, which examines stories about the Vietnam War and Vietnamese refugees, focuses on one of those instances in which the United States did resettle hundreds of thousands of refugees after the war. Um, Anne Lea Spiritu in her work has demonstrated that many Americans scripted the figure of the Vietnamese refugee into U.S. Cold War narratives so that the fleeing refugee offered evidence of communist atrocity And the resettling refugee offered evidence of U.S. humanitarianism. And these scripts that centered on the refugee rationalized for many 
U.S. intentions in a controversial and devastating war. Uh, Part of what I emphasize is that during the Vietnam War and in the later years of the Cold War, U.S. politicians drew on a language of human rights, but they tied human rights to anti-communism. To spread human rights was to make the world or to try to make the world anti-communist. And the following chapters of the book chart how that rhetoric of human rights shifted over time. Um, In terms of what we can learn about the novels, I think because U.S. leaders have brought the figure of the refugee into these national narratives of humanitarianism in really a quite a self-serving way, a dehumanizing way, um, issues of representation, I think, are particularly fraught for refugees. I don't want to romanticize literature in the book. Literature certainly does not always resist the status quo, and the publishing industry, such as it is in the United States, very much limits the stories that are shared. Though I would add that I think independent publishing and hybrid publishing are transforming uh, the state of publishing in the United States right now. Uh, But with all that said, literature has been one place where some refugees have had the opportunity to represent themselves and to tell their own stories. Um, And this is true with the two authors, Lan Kao and Viet Thanh Nguyen, whose work I analyze in the first chapter. Um, Their novels, The Lotus and the Storm and The Sympathizer, complicate those narratives of U.S. exceptionalism. They explore Vietnamese and Vietnamese-American refugee experiences that cannot be reduced to a U.S. Cold War story. And both novels do fracture the humanitarian promise of U.S. militarism and U.S. resettlement. Certainly, these two authors cannot speak for all Vietnamese refugees or Vietnamese Americans, but they do offer refugee perspectives of the Vietnam War in a field of memory most often narrated by white American writers and screenwriters. I think that literature offers a different way into thinking about these histories and particular experiences. It invites readers to go beyond the parameters of our own lives, of our own perspectives, and that's not nothing. Um, I also think that stories move discussions of, of war and the need for refuge it leads to out of a realm of abstraction and into a more intimate one. Um, And I point this out in the very beginning of the book when I discuss the rhetoric used by George W. Bush and his administration in order to justify the Iraq war. The rhetoric employed abstractions, ideas of what was over there, as if Iraq were only a place with terrorists to defeat and civilians to rescue. And what I think that literature has the potential at least to do is to make concrete um, or to make more concrete the places that I would argue U.S. politicians and journalists all too often obscure with moralized abstractions. Uh, Literature can make clear that what is over there is actually here uh, for millions of people. You talk about resettlement. What um, did President Ford urge the Congress to do for the Southeastern Asian refugees? Yeah, after North Vietnam captured Saigon um, on April 30th, 1975, ending the Vietnam War, uh, President Ford asked Congress to pass legislation that would provide uh, what he called humanitarian assistance to Southeast Asian refugees 
by allowing many of them to resettle in the United States. Um, And he specifically worked the need for the new legislation into a narrative of U.S. generosity since World War II. Um, He represented that post-1945 period as one of U.S. benevolence toward refugees, positioning the Vietnamese refugee resettlement as a continuation of the so-called good war that was World War II. Yet I think it's noteworthy that in his statement that he released on May 1st asking for this assistance, other than people fleeing World War II, those who were fleeing fascism, the specific refugees he cites, Hungarians and Cubans, were refugees fleeing communism, indicating, I think, without stating explicitly, that U.S. refugee policy has been deeply driven by ideologies concerning communism and anti-communism. I think that this is something that not a lot of people are aware of. Um, And in the 1970s, Vietnamese refugees were fleeing the correct thing. They were fleeing communism. The resettlement was necessary. I'm not partaking that, but it was self-serving in that it furthered the Cold War narrative that the United States wanted to promote. We didn't want them to come, but we needed them to stay. What does this quote mean? So that quote is from Lon Kao's semi-autobiographical novel, uh, The Lotus in the Storm, which tells the story of a former South Vietnamese officer, Minh, and his daughter, Mai, who flee Vietnam and resettle in the American South um, in the 70s. Uh, this is something that Min says as he narrates his memories of the war, that, that he and other South Vietnamese didn't want the United States to come, but that once the U.S. was there, they needed the U.S. to stay. And I think it reveals his frustration with the U.S. intervention. He provides an account of the war in which the United States held the control, even from the war's very beginning in the mid-1950s, when just U.S. advisors were present. Uh, Ronald Reagan famously uh, would describe the U.S. cause in the war as a noble one. Um, At the 1980 Veterans of Foreign Wars Convention, he described the U.S. intervention in Vietnam as humanitarian, suggesting that a small country had asked for our help against a totalitarian neighbor and that we gave it. Uh, But I point out that Mean's memories contrast sharply with Reagan's rather simplistic um, and infantilizing account. According to Mean, uh, the South Vietnamese did not easily place their trust in the Americans. And far from Reagan's image of the United States as a benevolent, more experienced nation offering aid to a newly free country, uh, Mean's representation suggests that the U.S. intervention was informed more by a logic of conditional assistance and disposability. What did you find out about the trauma of the Southeast Asian and their escape? Yeah, so I discussed trauma uh, more directly when I discussed my story in The Lotus in the Storm. Uh, Mai was a child throughout the war, uh, a teenager when she fled with her father. Um, so there are three narrators to this novel, Min, his daughter Mai, and then Bao, who appears as a narrator midway through. And Bao is Mai's main altar um, in response to the trauma of her childhood as a way 
to cope as a way to survive, uh, Mai develops dissociative identity disorder, and her main alter becomes the third narrator of the novel. Um, and in Mai's case, it is her alter, Bao, who knows the trauma, who remembers it, uh, so that Mai does not have to remember, so that she might continue living in a society that does not really want to know her experience. I think preferring to stay in that celebratory rhetoric of new life. Um, and the second section of the novel is actually titled Half Lives, uh, which serves, I suggest, as a direct amendment to the new life the resettlement promised. Um, I think what her sections underscore is that her story, um, a child story, is also a war story um, that should not be cut from the larger war narrative. And this picks up on Viet Thanh Nguyen's notion of just memory, a memory that attempts to sift through as many different stories as possible from as many different sides as possible in order to think through the fullness and the complexity of what has happened. Um, I think that it's become fairly commonplace to note that many soldiers continue to fight a war in their mind long after they stop fighting on the battlefield. And this is certainly the case for Min in the novel, but it's also the case for his daughter, for Mai, um, or for her alter Bao, who lives the traumatic moments of her life uh, most notably when her sister Khan dies in the back of a car with her in a loop over and over. Uh, the novel does end with a sense of closure as Mai returns to Vietnam in 2006 in order to scatter her father's ashes after he passes. So the novel is not arguing that meaningful lives cannot be lived after trauma, uh, but I think it is suggesting that that closure in many cases is partial. In Chapter 2, you talk about President Reagan and the 1980 Refugees Act. What did you learn about that? Um, yeah, so that act uh, was something that Jimmy Carter had signed in March of 1980 um, in response to the continuing arrival of Southeast Asian refugees by sea. Um, and with the 1980 legislation, the United States adopted the United Nations definition of a refugee, essentially removing the geographical and temporal restrictions previously favoring displaced Europeans. Um, and notably, the initial Vietnamese refugees who resettled in the United States um, didn't do so on the basis of their refugee status, but they were actually considered to be parolees. Uh, but the 1980 Refugee Act would allow the United States to resettle more refugees based on their status as refugees, according to the UN definition um, of someone who is outside of their country of origin because of a well-founded fear of persecution. Um, five months after Carter signed the act, uh, Reagan, during his campaign for presidency, uh, continued the usual rhetoric celebrating the United States for being a place of refuge for the persecuted since the nation's founding. Uh, but as I argue in the second chapter, soon his own administration would provide or would prove rather otherwise, um, continuing to acknowledge only those refugees fleeing communism. Uh, so throughout the 1980s, the United States would deny asylum to Central American refugees 
fleeing the civil wars that the United States itself was sponsoring with huge amounts of military and economic aid to anti-communist regimes. And this is part of what the book charts, the story that is revealed when we put different refugee stories together, uh, providing asylum to refugees escaping communism furthered U.S. interests. But to grant refuge to Central American refugees fleeing right-wing persecution from the Salvadoran and Guatemalan governments, as well as from the Nicaraguan Contras, would be to acknowledge that anti-communists were committing human rights atrocities on a massive scale. And this would shatter the worldview the Reagan administration sought to promote, would delegitimize its support of the anti-communists in Central America. And so the U.S. government at this time refused to acknowledge the refugees and instead marked them as criminals. The novels you discussed in Chapter 2, they were not written by refugees, but what can we learn from them about humanitarianism? Uh, So this brings up a really good point, I think, that the different histories of intervention and migration that I examine in the book have produced different conditions for the production of refugee literature in the United States. Um, There's a very rich body of Vietnamese American literature by refugee writers, many of whom fled Vietnam to the United States as children in the mid-1970s. On the other hand, there isn't a comparable body of work published in the United States by refugees from the Central American countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Nicaragua. Uh, But as I point out in the book, this is hardly surprising since the United States denied asylum to most of the refugees fleeing these nations. Um, And so for the second chapter, I did choose two novels by uh, Latinx authors who are not refugees themselves. Uh, Demetria Martinez is a Chicana author who wrote the novel Mother Tongue after participating in the 1980s sanctuary movement um, through which U.S. citizens sought to aid, sought to provide sanctuary for the Central American refugees the U.S. administration was turning away. Uh, Martinez was even indicted by the Reagan administration in 1987 on charges of conspiracy against the United States after Martinez had interviewed to Salvadoran women for an article in the Albuquerque Journal, uh, she was eventually acquitted on First Amendment grounds. Um, Tobar is the son, Hector Tobar is the son of Guatemalan immigrants. Um, and with the tattooed soldier, he wrote one of the first published US novels uh, by an author of Central American heritage. Um, what these novels teach us about humanitarianism On one level, uh, both novels represent this large peace movement that many U.S. citizens participated in um, during the 1980s in resistance to the U.S. policies towards Central America and Central Americans. Unlike the anti-war movement during the Vietnam War, uh, the U.S. Central America peace movement largely has been forgotten, um, and both novels, I think, keep the legacy and the memory of this movement alive. Uh, But more than that, I think that these novels teach us something about the importance of self-reflection in humanitarian movements. Um, Humanitarianism inevitably is is based on an inequitable relationship between the more privileged who help 
and the less privileged who are helped. Um, and those who help often are those with the means to represent. And sometimes their representations can depict people, in this case, refugees, solely as victims or people without agency. Um, sometimes these representations even write refugees out of their own stories and replace them with humanitarians as heroes. Uh, but these novels don't do that. In fact, I think they take on and critique some of the pitfalls of unreflective humanitarian projects. The book, The Tattooed Soldier, uh, what, did, what did this book reveal about the refugee status of the perpetuators? Um, the Tattooed Soldier follows two central characters, um, Antonio Bernal and Guillermo Longoria, who live in L.A. in the early 1990s, leading up to the L.A. riots. Uh, both men are migrants from Guatemala. Antonio fled to the United States after a government death squad murdered his wife and child. And Longoria actually had led the death squad that had murdered Antonio's family, as well as many other civilians during the 1980s, which was the deadliest decade of the Guatemalan Civil War. Um, in my analysis of the novel, I focus mostly on Longoria, the perpetrator. Um, the novel, I point out, does not relate exactly when or how uh, Longoria migrated to the United States. We know a few things about him. We know that he was a forced conscript, forced into the Guatemalan military at a young age. We know that he ultimately came to embrace his ultra-right military education that taught him that communism must be stopped at all costs. And as part of that, he participated in genocide. Uh, but the full details surrounding Longoria's migration uh, remain rather obscure, and we don't really know the level of choice he had or what precisely he was fleeing. And I do ask in the chapter what it would mean to consider this perpetrator to be a refugee, this man who expresses no regret uh, or little regret over his past actions, and who actually wishes on more than one occasion to cleanse L.A. of those who sympathize with those on the left, as he believes he did in Guatemala. Um, I want to make clear that the chapter is not a call for us to treat perpetrators as if they had not committed atrocious acts, as if they should not be held accountable for what they have done. At the same time, it does argue that we cannot look solely to Longoria in order to understand his past. Uh, we have to acknowledge the conditions that led Longoria to turn into the perpetrator that he became. And ultimately, the novel is not about the crimes of just this one man. Rather, it makes clear the U.S. role in facilitating Guatemala's genocide by training members of the death squads that carried it out. Uh, Longoria was trained at Fort Bragg in North Carolina, where he would become infatuated with the United States and where he was taught that communism must be fought with terrorism. And I, I suggest that to acknowledge Longoria as a refugee would necessitate acknowledging the role the U.S. played in creating Longoria in the first place and in helping to produce both perpetrators and refugees during the 1980s. 
Now, what does the novel *The Mother Tongue* tell us about the dangers of self-serving humanitarian projects? Um, so, *Mother Tongue* is structured from the perspective of a Chicana narrator who had worked within the sanctuary movement in the '80s. Um, and so, I note that Martinez wove the conditions of the novel's creation into the novel. Uh, so, like the author herself. The narrator does not bear witness as a refugee. She bears witness as one who chronicles the story. Um, and so the novel is narrated by Maria um, 20 years after the main events of the story in which she provides sanctuary for this man, Jose Luis, uh, who had fled El Salvador in the early 80s. Um, and I point out that her story highlights how U.S. journalists and politicians attempted to control public opinion about asylum seekers by controlling their representation in the news. But she also emphasizes, and this is what I focus on, that she herself misread him as a young woman, that she had mythologized him um, as she fell in love with him. It is, it is a love story. Um, and so I note that by acknowledging that she had romanticized Jose Luis, Maria positions her younger self within the dynamics of humanitarian movements um, in which, again, the more fortunate, usually those with the power to represent, often misread both themselves and those they assist. Um, her romantic misreading of Jose Luis, I think, demonstrates Martinez's awareness that the narrator is not exempt from misrepresenting the Salvadoran refugee experience, despite her willingness to help and eventual desire to learn. Um, and perhaps, ironically, I, I argue that the novel is successful because it constantly reiterates how she had read Jose Luis incorrectly how she had turned him into a fantasy, into her fantasy, uh, which reminds us, I think, that humanitarian movements also need to foreground that those who attempt to help do not necessarily know or understand the experiences of persecution and that their representations will be partial because they have to be. And being open about that, I think, is important. What did the mobilization of the armed forces in Haiti, what did that mean in September 15, 1994? How do you describe that in the book? Um, so when I turn to that in Chapter 3, um, I note that Clinton announced that he had sent uh, armed forces to Haiti, and he explained to the U.S. public that the intervention operation Uphold Democracy would overthrow the military regime of General Raul Cedras before returning power to Haiti's first democratically elected president, Reverend Jean-Bertrand Aristide. Um, and I note that throughout Clinton's address that night, he painted a brutal picture of the atrocities committed by the regime since the 1991 military coup uh, that established Cedras's rule. Um, and I note that such unrelenting emphasis on the regime's brutality is demonstrative of a shift in U.S. political culture late in the 20th century, uh, that in the post-Cold War period, in which the threat of communism no longer justified armed occupations, Clinton drew from human rights discourses. 
offering visualizations of atrocity to argue for the necessity of intervention on a humanitarian basis alone. And now to be sure, Raul Cedras's regime was indeed despotic, murdering in three years uh, between four and 7,000 people and displacing tens of thousands more. But in presenting the U.S. military as the humanitarian force that would save Haitians from the regime's brutality, our U.S. policymakers, as Noam Chomsky has demonstrated, strategically obscure U.S. support for Cedrus's initial overthrow of Aristide, as well as the neoliberal conditions that accompanied the U.S. promise to reinstate him. Um, so the way that I describe it in the book is that it indicates that the United States had aggravated the conditions necessary for its own so-called humanitarian intervention to depose the dictator, and that the operation gave U.S. policymakers a chance to spread free markets under the premise of spreading human rights. Tell us about the militarism on the island of Hispaniola. Uh, the book points out that Clinton's address um, obscured uh, not only his own administration's complicity, uh, but the already vexed history of U.S. militarism on Hispaniola, um, including the 1915-34 occupation of Haiti and the 1916-24 occupation of the Dominican Republic. Uh, both of these occupations faced much resistance from both Haitians and Dominicans. Uh, both occupations worked to ensure U.S. hegemony in the Western Hemisphere. In both nations, U.S. Marines set up strong police states, uh, training central armies and using them to fight the resistors. Um, Haitians, in fact, would come to call the army the U.S. Marines left the poison gift uh, for the army would continue to oppress the masses for decades. Uh, the Marines also reinstated forced labor in Haiti to build roads to, fill, to facilitate military control. Um, and this left 50,000 Haitians without their land and effectively erased the gains made in the Haitian Revolution that had ended slavery. Um, and it's noteworthy, too, that in the Dominican Republic, the U.S. Marines favored Rafael Trujillo, uh, which facilitated his rise to power in 1930. Um, and Trujillo would rule the Dominican Republic for 30 years, um, ordering the slaughter and execution of tens of thousands of Haitians and Dominicans. What can we learn about policy from the 1937 Parsley Massacre? Uh, so one of the novels that I examine in this third chapter is Edwidge Jonticott's novel, The Farming of Bones. And this novel returns to this massacre, the 1937 Parsley Massacre, uh, through which Rafael Trujillo attempted to rid the Dominican borderlands of all ethnic Haitians. So over a period of about five days, the massacre took anywhere from 9,000 to 40,000 lives. Um, and in my analysis, I examine the novel's representation of the massacre, uh, but within a broader landscape of transnational colonialism and imperialism, particularly in relation to U.S. military intervention early in the 20th century. Uh, the novel was published just three years after Clinton's occupation of Haiti, um, 
But even though it doesn't directly reference that occupation, I do suggest that it situates that occupation within a longstanding history of U.S. intervention on Hispaniola. Um, and the novel indicates U.S. complicity in Haiti's ongoing struggle with the legacy of colonialism, of which the 1937 massacre is one example, but far from the sole index. Uh, the novel critiques the transnational racial structures that contribute to what might appear to be a regional week-long act of ethnic hatred. Um, and Dante Cott herself has emphasized um, that contemporary race relations on Hispaniola cannot be understood in isolation, but must be read in the context of the island's oppression at the hands of European and North American colonialism and imperialism. Um, and she stated in an interview, she stated, it's not a matter of blame, but a matter of historical record. And that sentiment has really stayed with me uh, through the years that I've worked on this book, uh, that it's not about critiquing the United States for the sake of critiquing, but it's a matter of historical record that the United States has intervened in many places, that those interventions have had consequences, lasting consequences, and that we have to acknowledge that, that we cannot remember only the good um, if we want to understand where we are and how we got here and how we might move forward. Chapter four, you talk about the Sudanese refugees displaced during the Second Sudan War. What did you learn about foreign policy by addressing and looking at that population? Um, so in 2001, uh, nearly 4,000 Sudanese refugees resettled across the United States. Uh, they were mostly young men who had grown up in refugee camps in North Africa after fleeing attacks on their villages in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Uh, journalists and aid workers refer to these refugees as the Lost Boys of Sudan. This is how they became known. Um, and they became part of a narrative of U.S. benevolence toward refugees fleeing a war in which the United States seemed to have so little at stake. Unlike earlier U.S. policies welcoming refugees because of their flight from communism, the Sudanese refugee resettlement appeared to be emblematic of a post-Cold War U.S. commitment to human rights untainted by geopolitical ambition. And on their arrival, uh, U.S. journalists covering their stories often paired the promise of human rights with the promise of free markets. Capitalism was presented as the first guarantee of life in the United States. But as I started researching this, I realized that neoliberal capitalism played a role in driving the conditions that fueled that war for so long, uh, the Second Sudanese Civil War. Um, so again, it's a much more complicated history than the celebratory rhetoric might suggest. What is the message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book? I would hope that the book uh, leaves readers with an understanding that stories are important. Um, and also with a desire to read and to listen, uh, to listen to as many people's stories as possible and to listen with an open mind. Um, I don't think it's enough to listen to the news or to listen to politicians. We have to listen to people who have perspectives grounded in experiences, um, 
who have been the targets, if you will, of, of U.S. humanitarianism. Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell us the next project you'll be working on? Sure. So after submitting uh, the revisions for this book, I turned to a chapter I agreed to write for a forthcoming collection uh, called American Fury, Collective Action and the Politics of Moral Outrage, edited by Myra Mendible. And the chapter examines Art Spiegelman's mouse and the legacy of human rights nearly 80 years after World War II. And in the last section of that chapter, I wrote, I review the meeting minutes released by the McMinn County School Board in Tennessee that detail the conversation held before the vote to remove Mouse from the eighth grade curriculum early in 2022. And since then, I've been thinking more and more about attacks on higher education, pressures to hold back, difficult conversations, attempts to limit what we can or cannot include on our reading lists, histories we should or should not discuss with our students. Um, I'm actually working on a novel right now that touches on some of these themes. Um, And the plan for the next academic book, too, is to examine uh, popular and literary representations of higher education um, in the United States in order to think through some of the debates that we're seeing right now. So a different direction, uh, but one that I'm excited about. Well, we'll be looking forward to those projects. Thank you again for being on the podcast. And again, we've been talking with the author, Alina Koss, fighting over their U.S. war-making and contemporary refugees literature. Thank you. Thank you.